The following podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. We advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our research, to listen to our podcasts, and to watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. Welcome to Economics Applied, Episode 1, titled, A Global Commonwealth, If You Can Keep It. This episode features an interview with Condoleezza Rice on 31 October 2019. I just want to welcome everybody to the first instance of our podcast. Uh, I'm here today with my colleague Steve Davis, who's a long-term colleague of mine, both here at the University of Chicago, but also at the Hoover Institution, where we're both uh, senior fellows. Um, We're both economists by training and economists of a particular ilk, that is, economists who think economics is not just something you do on the blackboard, but something that's incredibly useful for thinking about the world in terms of understanding what we see, but also guiding things like policy and, and uh, you know, and, and, and of countries, individuals, firms, all up and down the line. And our goal in this podcast is really to blend economics with some of those real-world questions that I think all of us like to think about or maybe try to avoid thinking about sometimes. Uh, and to do that, we want to bring in some people who have real expertise and real, real understanding and experience dealing with the world, and hopefully we'll be able to put some economics around that and, and, and gain a little insight that comes from blending economics with uh, some of the wisdom of very bright people. And, of course, uh, Condi Rice, who is going to be our guest today, definitely fits that category. So let me turn it over to Steve, and, uh, you know, he can add his two cents to what I've said so far. But, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have uh, – this will be the first of many uh, exciting interviews for our, for our audience. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Um, you know, I'm really excited to host this uh, podcast with you, and, and we're both very grateful to the Hoover Institution uh, for sponsoring this podcast. And we're especially grateful to Condi uh, for joining us. So thanks so much, Condi. Um, I'd like to give a little introduction uh, just for the benefit of our audience. Uh, and uh, I won't do full justice to uh, your career and your accomplishments, but I do want to give some background. Um, You started your career, your academic career, as a specialist on the Soviet Union and joining Stanford as an assistant professor of political science in 1981, I think. That's correct. Um, You you moved up the ranks quickly. You were Stanford's (laughs) provost uh, from 1993 to 99, and uh, currently um, you hold appointments in the Department of Political Science, the Graduate School of Business, and the Hoover Institution. Uh, Some of your scholarly works include books on the Soviet Union, uh, European statecraft, the case for democracy, and uh, how businesses can deal with political risks. And of course, you have a very distinguished career as a public servant. Um, from 89 to 91, you served on the staff of President uh, George H.W. Bush's National Security Council and as special assistant to the President for National Security Affairs. You returned to government in 2001 as National Security Advisor to President George W. Bush. Uh, during his first term, and from 2005 to 2009, you served as the 66th Secretary of State of the United States. So um, that's quite an impressive uh, resume, Condi, and I've only touched on parts of it. 
Um, so you, you have a new book. Um, it's with uh, Philip Zilkow, and it's titled To Build a Better World, uh, Choices to End the Cold War and Create a Global Commonwealth. Um, I've read the book. Uh, it stresses the importance of America's partnerships with other nations uh, in building a global commonwealth. And, and maybe you could start out by just telling us what you mean by a global commonwealth and, and why it's a good thing. Well, certainly. And first of all, thanks very much for having me on. And um, I look forward to your future podcast, uh, Stephen and Kevin. I do think your idea that uh, economics is actually a part of just about everything that we do in international politics these days is uh, absolutely right on. And that would lead me to explain a little bit about what I meant by or what we meant by a global commonwealth uh, after World War II. Uh, the people who were looking back on the horrors of the war looked at the period between World War I and World War II, and they said, we can do better. And one of the first elements on which they wanted to do better was to build an international economy that would not be zero-sum game. Uh, they looked back. They said, uh, in that interim period, beggar thy neighbor trading policies, um, the currency manipulation of the time, violent conflict over resources had led to a depression and then to a war. And so they set out to build a very different kind of international economic system where my gain was not at your expense, where we could both grow, where uh, we had a positive sum game with everybody possibly becoming prosperous if we could trade in freedom. And so they had a very important uh, set of institutions, the International Monetary Fund, of course, for exchange rate stability. They created a an international bank for reconstruction and development, which would become the World Bank, and that was a source of capital for uh, countries coming out of the devastation of the war, but it was also a source of capital for countries that would come out of the next great transformation, which would be decolonization. And then, perhaps most importantly, they built the GATT, a trading system, uh, which was not so much how many cars can I sell into your market, but a set of rules of the game of how countries were going to trade freely. So at the very base, of this global commonwealth was the idea that economic prosperity could be shared, that it didn't have to be a source of conflict. Uh, they went on to uh, include in that global commonwealth uh, other elements. They, they wanted to handle security issues in a collaborative, cooperative way. That's why they created the United Nations and the Security Council. Uh, they believed in uh, free peoples, so they rebuilt Germany as a democracy and Japan as a democracy. They actually were early adherents of something that political scientists can now demonstrate. Democracies don't fight one another, and so it was the democratic peace. And the sort of guardian of this system of free markets, uh, free peoples, free trade, uh, later on, uh, capital mobility and the like, the guardian of that was the United States, which in partnership with countries around the world uh, would create a global commons in which everyone could, uh, could prosper and benefit. And that was very different from the way that uh, great powers thought about their role um, since really the creation of the Westphalian state, which was one of uh, uh, the laws of the jungle, um, my loss is your gain, and vice versa. That's a great way of putting it. I, I, this is Kevin. I'm, I'm sort of struck by what you said. And it seemed one of the elements you stressed was that the U.S. sort of was the guardian of that, but 
it, they didn't impose that. Is that is that part of what you mean by a commonwealth as opposed to maybe a more traditional way that somebody would run an empire, for example? Yes, I mean, they wanted countries to opt in, <laughs> not to be forced in. And, of course, they, the United States had the benefit of having uh, strong allies, um, at least once they were rebuilt from the war in Europe. Uh, eventually, they would have equally strong allies in Asia as uh, Japan became a major factor. But it was clearly, particularly on the economic side, a system into which you opted in. And the interesting thing is that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the countries of Eastern Europe did opt in. Russia itself even opted in. And ultimately, when Deng Xiaoping would bring China out of its isolation, China opted in uh, to the economic side of this bargain. So it was a very different open system. Uh, it did have to be protected because uh, the Soviet Union had a very different view uh, occupying h half of Europe and uh, places uh, all over the globe. And so it had to be protected by American military power. One of the things that people sometimes don't focus on is one of the early, uh, by 1956, one of the early American responsibility was to protect freedom of navigation, to pre protect the sea lanes, again, linked to this idea of a uh, global, mm -hmm. global commonwealth. Can I, can I just pick up on, again, the guardianship role of the United States and the vision you sketched uh, in the post-World War II period, which is it's one that resonates with me. Um, it seems to resonate with um, a smaller share of the U.S. electorate and maybe the U.S. intellectual uh, pundits and so on than it did in the past, this, this notion that um, the U.S. should uh, work hard to sustain and and build the global commonwealth. Uh, it seems to me that's fraying. I wonder if you if you share that view, uh, and if so, why why is that happening? Well, it is fraying, and uh, I would I would say this: uh, the American people have always had, or America has always had, uh, contradictory impulses. One is, uh, you know, let's keep to ourselves and uh, we can sustain ourselves. That was clearly the case prior to 1945. Uh, the other was our interests have to be defined in the context of other people's interests as well. In other words, self-interest means being a part of a uh, commonwealth with other democratic states. So those two impulses have always been there in American policy. And leadership can uh, really appeal to either of those impulses. And right now, for a variety of reasons, and I'll come to them, uh, the impulse that says, we've done this long enough, uh, didn't we defeat the Soviet Union, didn't we unify Germany, didn't we defeat at least al-Qaeda that uh, did the t attacks of 9-11, uh, can't somebody else pick up this uh, burden uh, that impulse is strongest, and I think it's strong for a couple of reasons. Um, it's strong because the sense of endless wars, as President Trump has called them, uh, that we don't seem to be able to conclude uh, our involvement in places like Afghanistan or Iraq. But, of course, it took us 45 years. This is one of the points that Philip and I make in the book. It took us 45 years before Germany could be unified. So sometimes things take time. <laughs> Um, I think you also have people feeling um, that maybe America isn't quite as strong and confident at home. 
um, after the financial crisis in particular, um, and it's something that's been going on for a long time, economists have been pointing to it, uh, economic inequality, uh, social, a lack of social mobility, a sense that not everybody really benefited from the globalizing commonwealth that uh, we've been describing, uh, it has led to some saying, why are we doing this? Why are we not paying attention to our own knitting, which has really kind of come apart? Unless you think this is just uh, Donald Trump, um, I would point people to the, um, to the article, the uh, interview that Barack Obama did in his last uh, weeks in office with Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic. It basically sounds like this. Our allies are freeloaders. They got me into that stupid war in Libya. Then they didn't even have an am enough ammunition to fix it. Uh, to finish it, and I had to go bail them out. So this impulse has been there for a while, and um, I do think it relates in in part to America's own sense that uh, its social fabric is not as strong as it once was. So, so is the solution to repair the American social fabric in the view that the to restore this post World War II vision, or is it somehow to replace the? the the U.S.-led global commonwealth with something else? Well, I certainly don't like the odds <laughs> that the uh, a replacement global, global commonwealth would be one that was in our interest or consistent with our values, because if you look at the potential guardians of a different commonwealth, uh, and it would look uh, more like countries that uh, do not believe in democracy, countries that don't necessarily even believe in uh, free markets in the way that we think about them, uh, who are the obvious possibilities. China is an obvious possibility. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at uh, what the Chinese are doing with their Belt and Road Initiative, which is really building infrastructure throughout um, largely the third world, but also in, in places in uh, southern Europe, uh, it doesn't look as if uh, that is a kind of commonwealth. Rather, that's a, uh, you know, loan-to-own kind of uh, strategy with the strategic positioning of that infrastructure uh, for Chinese purposes. Um, if you look at the way China looks at uh, global trade and open markets, it's open markets as long as your markets are open, not as long as Chinese markets are open. So uh, the Chinese, uh, one of the frustrations for um, business people, whether they are American or Australian or are European, is that large segments of the Chinese economy remain closed. And if you look at the way that China looks at the Internet, uh, we're about to have two very separate Internets. Uh, you can, for most Westerners, the Internet is supposed to be, and by the way, by Westerners here, I'm using the term loosely to mean mm -hmm. democratic states, so also Korea or Japan. Um, uh, you, you want to say what you want on the Internet. Um, you want to, to uh, be involved, uh, to, to be in contact with those that you want to be in contact with. To a certain extent, some minor limitations, you can, of course, do exactly that. Well, the Chinese Internet is one that is a maximum means of social and political control, where you give a social uh, score to, a social credit score to each of your citizens. Uh, you then use those social credit scores to decide who gets train tickets and who doesn't. Uh, those are very different views of the Internet. So I think if anyone's looking for somebody to pick up the notion of free markets, free peoples, uh, protected by whom, 
uh, you're going to have a hard time finding uh, a replacement for the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, is that most? Why is the United States so uniquely positioned in your mind? There is. is does it have to do with China, while being a participant in the kind of economic side or trade side of things, and maybe in a one-sided way, is it the fact that they're they haven't adopted a similar system on the political side, or how do you, what, what allowed the U.S. to kind of build a commonwealth, be a leader of a commonwealth? Well, it's, a, um, it's a very interesting question uh, because. Um, you, you have to go to a, an explanation that, frankly, political scientists don't like very much, uh, <laughs> which is ideas and ideology uh, rather than structure of the system. Uh, because most of international history, going back to the founding of the Westphalian state more than 300 years ago, uh, would have said that when the United States became the dominant, most powerful uh, state after World War II, it would have instead protected its economic lead. Um, Sixty-some percent of the world's GDP because of the uh, devastation at other places, um, a true great power would have protected that. Um, a true great power would have said, well, we are absolutely, um, yes, there's a Soviet Union, but we're protected by these great <coughs> oceans, at least uh, for the time being, it was a long time before the Soviet Union could reach the shores of the United States. Why take a pledge that an attack upon one is an attack upon all? Uh, and a pledge to, if necessary, trade Washington for London when the Soviet Union exploded a nuclear weapon five years ahead of schedule. Uh, why bother with the United Nations? By the way, we'd rejected the League of Nations, which had been our own president's idea, Woodrow Wilson, after World War I. So I think you have to go to a sense of America as an idea. Now, to be fair, America first consolidated the continent before it was willing to take this role. You know, I, <laughs> there's this, this line out there, well, the United States was isolationist until 1945. And I always ask my students, well, if the United States was isolationist before 1945, how did it get to be so big? Uh, it wasn't isolationist. It was consolidating the, con the continent, um, buying uh, land where it could, for instance, from the French in the Louisiana Purchase and Alaska uh, from the Russians, uh, taking land where it uh, did in a very brutal way against uh, Native Americans, uh, fighting wars against Spain uh, and Mexico. And so it consolidated the continent. That gave it, I think, a kind of firm basis. But uh, I think America has always prospered when it's not just about its interest in the old-fashioned, um, realist way of thinking about interest. My gain is your, uh, is, is your loss, and your loss is my gain. But rather this idea that uh, you can have uh, more of a global commons. Yeah, I just want to say, I mean, I guess as an economist, I would look back and say, you know, while that may have been difficult to do, after the fact, it wasn't costly to do that in the sense that we were far better off as a country going down that road, that is, rebuilding Europe, looking out for the security of trade and other things around the world, I would think allowed the U.S. itself to do much better than they would had they gone down the isolationist route. Absolutely. Uh, but it's easy for us to say that in 2019. It wasn't 
self-evident in 1945. Exactly. And it's hard to even keep people on that track, even if you tell them, look, think back, right? I That's mean, how right. How do we get that message out to people that building that commonwealth is not just in, it's not a charity event at the end of the day, in that it's, it's actually in our interest. And it's not always the easiest sell, I guess. It's always easy for people to see, well, boy, couldn't I do better, you know, with the beggar thy neighbor, neighbor policy. Right. Even though at the end of the day, that's probably not the road to success. It is not the road to success, but I think I would give you three uh, ways that we've got to do it. One is uh, a little bit of a scare tactic, frankly. Um, Look, people, Americans may not want to be involved in the world, but they also don't like seeing people beheaded on television. So if nobody else is going to do it, then, of course, we'll fight ISIS. Uh, They don't like to see... Uh, Vladimir Putin eating his neighbors. And so, of course, we'll have to stand up to Russia. So that impulse that if nobody else is going to do something about the bad things in the world, we have to do it, that impulse is still there. Uh, Secondly, um, you have to highlight for people the fact that for so many Americans, uh, the global commonwealth on the economic side has indeed meant jobs. Um, I was I grew up, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up in Colorado, but my family, all my relatives are still in Alabama. Uh, You know, when President Trump says, I don't want any German cars on the road, that would be a real surprise to those people in in, uh, outside of Birmingham (laughs) who make Mercedes, right? So uh, there has to be a sense that uh, not all automobiles with American workers are actually made in uh, Detroit. And then secondly, uh, thirdly, I think we do have to come to terms with the people who didn't do well under globalization, largely because of lack of skills. I mean, you're economists. We are at a near full, we are really at a full employment economy at this point. And yet you have unemployed people. Why? Well, that would suggest that we've got a mismatch between jobs and skills. And uh, our system is not particularly well set up to be Uh, agile enough to deal with the changing nature of the job market and uh, getting people's skills up to the level that they can. And by the way, uh, most of the problem actually isn't globalization. A lot of the problem is automation. But populists want you to have an other who you can blame for your troubles. And uh, bots, robots, don't make a good other. So that (laughs) becomes immigrants if you're on the right. If you're on the left, it's uh, big banks. If you're on the right or the left, it's tech companies. And if you're on the right or the left, it's China. And uh, that is really, I think, what's fueling a lot of the populism. Yeah. Now, you know, so far, and, and really, I think you, in your book, you, you talk about kind of the economic side and the political side. And, and you can think about, say, for example, trade agreements and other aspects of international relationships, especially national security. And one question I have is, how, how are they linked? Is it wise to link them as it seems like we often do? Or is it better to keep more of a distance when it comes to issues like human rights or other security issues and trade? You know. Yes, I've, I've never been uh, a fan of uh, a very tight linkage between, say, trade and um, 
human rights or trade and national security issues because I think there is an economic logic of its own that, uh, as we've been saying, is to the benefit of the U.S. economy and therefore to the benefit of American workers, American citizens. And so uh, to a certain extent, I've never been a big fan of tight linkage. Now, we do have some linkages, and they come largely because as trade agreements are negotiated, the Congress has had uh, certain requirements, and those requirements are growing. For instance, in environmental um, that that uh, countries with whom we're we're signing trade agreements should have certain environmental standards. I actually think that's probably a good thing to put into uh, trade agreements. Uh, certain labor standards uh, that can get a little crazy because you're asking people. In certain cases, it becomes just kind of protectionism under another name, which is you have to pay workers at the same level that you'd pay them in the United States. Well, that makes no sense in Colombia or in the Philippines or or the like. So, you have to be careful that you don't kind of spill over into protectionism, but I have never minded that you have some standards imposed in trade agreements. Uh, you really don't want to ignore human rights. And so even though you try to get a trade agreement with the Chinese, I, as secretary, always went with a list of political prisoners that we were hoping to get uh, released. And I think you have to speak about human rights because uh, America should care about them and the American people care about them. Um, but the fact is, these linkages are uh, are going to happen in perception, sometimes in reality. And if you are a, an official, you have to be aware that those are out there. For instance, there's no way that um, in the midst of some of the human rights issues in Saudi Arabia, uh, that you could do certain trade negotiations now. You just couldn't. But do, is it a good thing to keep an open path to Saudi Arabia? Can we do without Saudi Arabia as an important uh, ally in the Middle East? No. And so you find yourself uh, trying to walk and chew gum at the same time, trying to recognize that there are certain interests that you have, but trying to always be aware of the importance of your values. So when do you make the judgment about, you, you've been involved in these negotiations, and <clears throat> To Kevin and me, it looks uh, a little mysterious as to you know when you make judgments to link these things and delink them. Yeah. Are these just tactical issues, of the, or how do you go about thinking about that? Well, I think for the most part, you don't link them. Uh, but as I said, they get linked in trade agreements because they're. Remember that trade treaties have to go through the Congress, right. and uh, the Congress, if you don't have environmental standards as a part of the treaty, if you don't have labor standards as a part of the treaty. Uh, if, you, if you don't have those, at least those two and sometimes more, uh, the treaty's not going to go through. I, I was a veteran of uh, the Colombia, the free trade agreement with Colombia. And uh, this was a country that had come out of almost being a failed country in 2000. I mean, uh, the police couldn't go into 30% of the territory or the army because the FARC was so strong in Colombia. And through uh, bipartisan effort, we managed to get Colombia to the place that it was now a safe country for investment. And so we wanted to do a free trade agreement. It took a long time because people kept trying to add uh, conditions to it, including I issues of how the Colombians dealt judicially with uh, some of the offenses of paramilitaries uh, in the the 80s and the 90s. So 
Uh, you do the best that you can. You negotiate what you can. Uh, there's no s particular formula for it. It's uh, you, you, but you do have to recognize that these issues are going to come up. I, I have a question for you. you and this kind of goes back to something you said earlier. Economists tend to look at the West's success in the Cold War as a victory for free markets over more centrally planned economies. Was it also a victory for the opt-in world of, over the imposition of authority world? Or do you think that played less of a role? Or No, I, th I think they worked very much together. Um, in, in part, the, the Soviet Union was leading a system that was built on what they called autarky. In other words, not to integrate into the international economy. And uh, they wanted to do that because they wanted to maintain maximum control. And for the unfortunates who happened to be in their mm -hmm. sphere, like the Hungarians or the Poles or the, the Romanians or others, uh, they were sort of stuck with that system too. Um, central planning worked pretty well uh, in the early industrial phase, 1965, 66, 67, for the Soviet Union. But where they really uh, fell, uh, where it really fell apart was around technology. Uh, they simply couldn't keep up technologically. And that's ultimately what crashed those economies. Now, you know, when I was in, the, in a graduate school in the Soviet Union, um, you would go to the store, and since everything was by central plan, if the, if the plan told them to make, you know, 1,000 pair of green shoes, they didn't worry about demand for it, right? So the citizen got whatever uh, he or she got, whichever was what the plan uh, determined. Mm. And so there were consumer rumblings, but I think, um, and, and people recognized that in freer countries, economic choice was greater. But I really think it came down to the inability of the Soviet Union to sustain itself as a technological power against this incredibly technologically powerful, vibrant uh, system uh, of opt-ins. Uh, if you, you know, the, the Soviet Union was very good at some very basic science. They had great mathematicians. They couldn't translate it into anything technology, technologically. So, so Connie, it, it, it sounds like the picture you're drawing of the Soviet Union and why it eventually failed as an economic system, at least, uh, sounds very different from the popular conception of China today. Do you see it that way? And if so, how is it that the Chinese have more successfully navigated the challenges to technological development presented by central planning? Well, I would say that they have uh, done so to date um, because there's there's still a way to go. But the Chinese made the um, opposite decision from the Soviet Union. They opted in to the economic system. And one of the questions that a lot of people have today and a lot of the frustration with China was did they take and take and take from the system until they were then capable of going it all on their own uh, technologically? And that's kind of the $64,000 question mm -hmm. today. This is why you hear um, people actually saying something that think, I think, by the way, would be a disaster. You shouldn't have Chinese students in the laboratories of Stanford or MIT or Chicago because they're just going to take that technology home and build the Chinese military with it. Um, if we were going to close that door, it's probably too late <laughs> because China is now able to innovate uh, indigenously. 
but they stole a lot of technology along the way, IP theft from companies. It wasn't just from university labs and a lot. They had a, you know, they, they gained a lot in learning how to do these things. Um, and so when the Chinese come out or when Xi Jinping comes out and says, uh, we're going to surpass the United States in quantum computing, uh, AI, frontier technologies, uh, Americans say one, two things. They say, first of all, it kind of gets our backs up, you know, it becomes a kind of Sputnik moment. But secondly, um, did we wait too late and let them have complete access to this technological system to the point that they now may actually be able to do this on their own? And I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that question. Is, is, is the issue then, in some sense, that they were able to opt in for parts but not others, parts of the Commonwealth? I think that's a very crucial point. They were able to opt in to the economic side. A lot of people, uh, by the way, opt in one way, because right, exactly. one of the frustrations is that they didn't open their markets. So uh, they opted in, but only in a sense of taking. And this worked fine, by the way, as long as they were kind of still a developing country and uh, companies were uh, assembling there or manufacturing there. But as they've become a bigger technological powerhouse, now it looks like opting in on just part of this was a problem. I'll use one very good example of this, Huawei. Uh, Huawei is probably technologically more sophisticated in 5G than any other company in the world. There are no American providers. So we're talking about um, um, Nokia, for instance, um, and, and the problem there is they're not, they're not as good. So uh, Huawei, which is a part of an authoritarian system, uh, uh, by the way, no, Nokia and Ericsson, I should say, but Huawei, which is a part of an authoritarian system, and people, people are saying, now, wait a minute. If Huawei is your 5G network, the Chinese government is going to have access to any and everything that they wish on that 5G network. And now this is the struggle to get um, American intelligence allies, particularly, uh, not to install that. So you see how the technological powerhouse within an authoritarian state becomes a problem for the system. Kandi, I think, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Um, we, we greatly appreciate chatting with you. It's been very insightful, and you've given us lots to think about. So thanks so much um, for helping us launch our podcast. Well, thank you very much, and good luck going forward. Thank you, Kandi. I can't say enough. You exceeded our expectations, which were extremely high coming in. So <laughs> it's fantastic. Thanks we a lot. Enjoyed it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.